Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, the crash at Crush. And it was quite an explosion, and it sent shrapnel out into these 30 to 50,000 people. In our first ever live podcast recording from Pinewood Public House, author Mike Cox talks with us about the deliberate, high-speed head-on collision between two locomotives. His recently published book tells the story of America's deadliest publicity stunt and dispels some of the myths. I can find absolutely no record of that at all. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. So I don't know if you heard that. We were playing, that was a Scott Joplin song, The Great Crush Collision March. And so we'll play that again for you at the end so you can kind of hear it and you can listen for the train crash in the song. It's really easy to find. (laughs) So we're really happy to have Mike Cox with us because Mike Cox just wrote a book called The Train Crash at Crush, Texas, which, of course, when you got a topic, you want a guy that wrote the book on it. And so Mike is the guy here for us. Mike's written a lot of books, probably most noted for his two-volume work on the Texas Rangers. So if 500 pages is not enough on the Texas Rangers, there's a volume two with 500 (laughs) pages in it that you can check out as well. Mike writes a weekly column. He's done it for about the last 20 years called Texas Tales that some of you may enjoy. But he's published over 20 books related to different aspects of Texas history, even crime stories and biography and memoirs. He's done a lot of different variety. And so we're happy to have him with us today. So thank you, Mike, for having on with us. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Today's topic is going to be the crash at Crush. And Stephen, how long have I been asking you to do a podcast about this, you think? Yeah, so Randy <laughs> finds out about things and says, have you ever heard of something that I've really heard about? So, But he, he does that a lot. So he, he gets excited about these sorts of topics. And so this is a topic that everyone asks why is the topic that is the question that you ask after hearing about this incident. And so he asked me about this a, a long time ago. And we're lucky to have Mike on. And so I don't want to steal Mike's thunder. We'll start with a question. What is the crash at Crush? Well, the crash at Crush happened, we, we just passed the uh, anniversary of it by a couple of weeks. It was on September 15th, 1896. The subtitle of my book is America's Deadliest Publicity Stunt. And so basically that's what it was. I mean, it, it was a, a publicity stunt. And then also it was a, a revenue-generating device. But uh, what happened was there, there was a railroad called the Missouri-Kansas and Texas Railroad. And since it had a KT in it, pretty early on, their advertising people started calling the railroad Katy, K-A-T-Y. And that's how the railroad was known. And even their ads had pictures of early on sort of Gibson girl-looking uh, Katies uh, with the big hats and, and veils, that sort of thing. And then uh, the railroad lasted into the... Uh, 80s and in the in the late 60s they had a Katie girl in hot pants the railroad did evolve quite a bit uh, with the with the times unfortunately it couldn't totally keep up with the times and so it eventually went out of business those of you who do know history know that in 1893 and 1894 the economy had really tanked very complicated and when I went to Texas Tech I only took three hours of finance for dummies or or no for journalism majors that's what it was (laughs) very complicated thing over gold versus silver but the economy really tanked. I mean, it was it was the nation's worst depression up until the, the Great Depression. So the railroad was, was hanging in, but they were looking for other ways to, to generate money. The line went from St. Louis all the way down to, to Galveston. And, of course, it came through Waco. And then from here, it went to Temple. 
and then it uh, went to Smithville, and at some point it cut off and went through San Marcos and came back up to, into Austin. A lot of people think, and, and one of the things I do in this book is try to, or I do break, I hope, a bunch of myths about Crush. One myth is that the Katy Railroad invented crashing steam locomotives together for, for profit and PR, but it's not so. There was just a delightful character, and one of the cool things about writing a book is the uh, the people that you meet. Now, all the people in this book are dead, but I still kind of feel like I got to know them, and there was just one wonderfully scandalous, rags-to-riches sort of character who is really my favorite character out of the whole book. His name was uh, uh, Alfred Streeter, and he uh, started off as what they call a news butch, which was a little kid who worked on the passenger train selling peanuts and newspapers and, and that sort of thing. When I read this one thing about him that I'm about to share, I knew that clearly he was a guy destined for, for greatness. He would sell newspapers, as I said, to passengers on the train. And then, think about it, most times when we read a newspaper on an airplane, what do we do? We leave it there. Well, that's the same thing that would happen on passenger trains. And this little kid would wait until everybody got off the car, and then he'd go down and collect all the newspapers that he'd sold for two or three cents and sell them again. It's so, a good entrepreneur you know, some, right there. Some, some early recycling. And, <laughs> and, but anyway, he, he, he moved up the hierarchy in railroad, started off as a, as a brakeman, which was a very dangerous job, and then he, he eventually worked his way up to conductor. And then after that, he uh, kind of left the railroad business and uh, got into the distribution of railroad parts. Chicago, and I didn't realize this until I started researching the book, was a, a tremendous center of railroad manufacturing. That's where the Pullman cars were made and, and a lot of components for railroad cars. So he got into that business. And, and one of the things that he had noticed as a railroad man, in fact, one of his jobs had been on a crew that would go out and handle train wrecks, would get the trains back on the track, repair the track, and that sort of thing. It occurred to him that he had seen so many people show up for train wrecks, just like today. I always tell people that we, we, we all love disasters as long as there's only two things about it, as long as A, it doesn't involve anybody we know or love, or B, somehow doesn't affect us personally. But otherwise, we loved, we still love disasters, hurricanes. We, everybody likes to watch that kind of thing. So it, it dawned on him, you know, maybe I could get somebody to furnish me with two obsolete steam locomotives, crash them together, of course, first sell tickets to the event. And so that's what he did. He conned a, a railroad into uh, providing him two obsolete but functional steam locomotives. He promoted it in the, through the media and with some degree of paid advertising. Well, he pulled it off in May of 1896, just south of Columbus, Ohio. They got a huge crowd. He made a fair amount of money. It got national uh, publicity. What I think happened is that Crush, he was a, their general passenger agent, happily was named William George Crush. Such a good name. Isn't that, isn't that cool? So, you know, I, I've said that that's one thing that, that caused the crash at Crush to be remembered because it's so smooth off the tongue, the crash at Crush. I don't think the crash at Westphalia would have quite the, the, the ring to it, you know, it's just, uh, so I think that. William Crush wanted to enhance ticket sales for the railroad and that he had seen the coverage of this story and the light bulb went off for him. Now, the crash at Crush was the first time that a railroad company did it. Prior to that, this guy had done it just as a private promoter, so that made it a little bit different. But they sold ex what they called excursion tickets and brought people from not only all over Texas, but Oklahoma, Kansas. People came down from Missouri. About uh, estimates vary, as they always do. I mean, I've seen as low as 30,000, as high as 50,000 is the number of people who showed up at the little whistle-stop town of Crush, Texas, which was created specifically for this crash and taken down immediately after the crash. But what they did not calculate on, uh, they, they got a good crowd, therefore they made money from that. They got great publicity, that was fine. But they didn't calculate on the fact that when you crash two steam boilers together at 50 miles an hour, that the equivalent force would be, of course, 100 miles an hour, and they might explode, which indeed they did. And it was quite an explosion, and it sent shrapnel out into these thirty to 50,000 people. Why in the world more people were not killed? I, I have never figured that out. I, I mean, I have kind of a theory, but only two people were killed outright. But that's why I call it America's deadliest publicity stunt. There have been a lot of wacky publicity stunts. I couldn't find anything that was fatal. So yeah. just to kind of place it, where exactly oh, would point. Crush be today? Crush is, or was, three miles south 
of West Texas, which, of course, is, is also confusing because most of the time when you tell people, oh, yeah, they got great kolaches at West Texas. Well, what? What do you mean West Texas has great kolaches? Anyway, it was three miles south of the little town, the little Czech town of West, which made it, I think it's 13 miles north of Waco by the tracks. So Waco was the biggest community to the scene of it. And the railroad came in, they leased property on either side of their right-of-way from uh, uh, two local farmers, and then they sent a a 500-person work crew there to literally build a little city. They built a a wood-frame depot, they built two telegraph offices, they built a, uh, a wooden concession stand pavilion for people to eat. They brought in a cook from the Katy Railroad, and, and they sold food, so they made money that way. They sold licenses for people to come in as, as vendors. What really fascinates me, this is 1896, just the year before John Wesley Hardin, Texas's deadliest outlaw, had been shot to death in a saloon out in El Paso. That's classic Wild West stuff. Now here in the middle of Texas, we're kind of merging the, the flamboyance of the late 19th century with 20th century or beginning to be 20th century kind of technology, which I found fascinating as a, as a lay historian. One thing that I've heard in stories of a lot of people make a lot out of P.T. Barnum's relationship with Crush, and I didn't know how much you found in your research as far as Barnum's relationship with Crush and how that may have played into this. And actually, that's one of the myths. If you read the, the articles, they refer to P.T. Barnum. But actually, it was John Ringling, one of the one of the Ringling brothers. He helped to a small extent. Now, most of the Katie's records and all their contracts and correspondence from 1896 were destroyed or, or lost, and so I presume they had contracts, and uh, they they probably had some kind of a contract with Ringling. But I think that Crush and Ringling met because the Katie Railroad handled the circus trains when the circus came to Texas and so I think that's how they became acquainted with each other and also I'm sure Crush went to the World's Fair in Chicago in 1890-92 I guess and Buffalo Bill had set up his Wild West show right across from the the venue at the World's Fair. I know Crush would have been there because just about everybody in America who had any money did go there and I I think that helped inform his his attitude uh, and, and his thoughts about showmanship. How did they kind of get the word out? Because even in today's standards, trying to get 40,000 people to one place at one time would be amazing. And back in the day when there's no social media, it'd be yeah, really uh, possible. that's true. Uh, uh, actually do a crowd before Facebook or, uh, or uh, no, uh, no tweets that were involved in this. Did it the old-fashioned way through newspaper publicity. They did put up posters along their, along their line. And, of course, at their depots, uh, they ran ads in the newspapers. Shortly before the crash, they'd taken two old, obsolete 1870, early 1870s steam locomotives that were still operable, but they needed a, you know, they gave them a tune-up. And then they painted them. They painted one with uh, basically a, a red color scheme, and the other one they painted green, you know, as in stop and go, I guess. And they outfitted one of them at their shops at Parsons, Kansas. The other one they outfitted at the division point of Denison, Texas. And then they ran the trains to all their depots and stopped and let people come and see the giant locomotive that was about to meet its doom. And they, there, were, there was a lot of bullfight, duel of monsters, that sort of thing. I mean, you would almost think of the modern equivalent of the giant truck crash sort of thing. A lot of people just love that sort of thing. So that's how they got it out. And, and really, it's, a, it's kind of a case study for early day public relations. And, and I used to practice that dark art myself professionally. I can tell you that in the 1890s, uh, that term didn't even exist. I mean, you know, yeah, there was publicity that there was that word and PR people were called press agents. So the function was there, but it was, you know, vastly different, of course, than it is today. Did they have any idea how many people were going to show up? I think so. Now, uh, I believe they were pleasantly surprised, except Crush was, and I'm talking about Mr. Crush, was great at at hyperbole. I mean, at one point, I think I saw that he said there'd be room for 250,000 people there. And probably so, because they went up and down there right away looking for a good venue, and they did find a spot that was something of a, of a natural amphitheater. Where most of the people were is, is probably covered by I-35 now. The paid guests were on the west side of the right-of-way toward what is now I-35. The local folks 
who did not pay to see it, but paid a hard price that I'll tell you about in a minute, basically just trespassed and came up in their, rode, rode horseback and came up in their buggies, and they were on the east side of the track. Well, the railroad, to its credit, had done a fairly good job of keeping the, the folks on the west side a safe distance back, but the folks on the east side were not controlled that much by the railroad, and so both of the, uh, of the fatalities were on the east side with, uh, involving local people and not uh, any of the guests who came in. Now, one of the guests who did come in by train also was killed, but I believe that that was probably due to the overconsumption of adult beverages because he was on a train after the crash headed back home and somehow was trying to get from one car to the other car and fell off and got crushed by the uh, crushed uh, crushed by the <laughs> you, you're gonna by you the there. train. You're going to hurt a business here. Don't talk about that. <laughs> we want them drinking. <laughs> one of the things that I'm interested in you kind of going through is everything from the timing, getting the timing down of when these things were going to hit each other and where they were going to hit each other to how they staged it. And I've heard you gave an approximate of the speed, but I've seen things all over the place with regard to how fast they were actually going and when the engineer jumped off. All those are questions I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, and, and you kind of just have to take what sounds like the most uh, plausible. The, the Dallas Morning News and the Galveston News were the equivalent of the New York Times uh, of Texas. I mean, they were both really solid newspapers, even in the 1890s. And so both of them covered this uh, event heavily. And so... I think that their coverage was probably closest to, to accurate. And they sent somebody down the day before the crash, and Crush, being the great PR guy that he was, allowed that reporter to be in one of the locomotives as they did a test run. They did have a, a gauge on the train, and he said in his article that they were at, I think they hit 52 miles an hour, something like that. The reason that I got into writing and journalism is my mathematical skills, but I do know that when one object moving 50 miles an hour and the other object moving 50 miles an hour come to a, a stop against each other, the equivalent force is 100 miles an hour. And then when you throw in the fact that that steam was under tremendous pressure, it is a recipe for disaster. But they, they thought they had it, and there was one of their engineers that cautioned them that the boilers might blow and basically, the other engineers said, nah, that won't happen. And so they went with the majority opinion rather than <laughs> being, a, you know, OSHA did not exist in that time, or, or probably the railroad wouldn't have existed after that point either. But So how did they do the test run? Did they have one of the trains off the track so they could get it to top speed without hitting anything? They built a siding, and they could switch back to the main line, and I, I presume that that's where they, where they did it. But, you know, they could close down the main line since you know, they were running the trains and they literally, they backed up both locomotives a mile apart and they did the same thing for the actual crash. And so they had a mile to, and of course they already had steam, steam up. And so basically all they had to do was, was pull back the, uh, uh, the lever and, uh, the train, you know, slowly started gathering speed and momentum. Uh, most of them jumped off. They said when it was uh, traveling about 10 miles an hour, which you know, risking itself. One kind of, uh, you know, hot dog engineer stayed on longer out of a sense of, uh, I think, misplaced sense of showmanship, you know, really scared the railroad officials who were there, including Crush. And finally, at about the last minute that he, or second that he could safely, he jumped off. The, the miracle there is none of those guys got hurt. I really, I don't, I can't explain why more people were not hurt because every account of the explosion that I've read said that there was shrapnel everywhere. And of course, a famously a photographer from Waco who the railroad had hired to, to take pictures of this crash, which fortunately have survived. Just as he pushed the shutter on the impact of the two trains, about a two-inch bolt hit him in the right eye, penetrated through the eye, actually through the, the back bone and into the brain. And so everybody thought that he was going to be dead, of course. Uh, happily, uh, there were a bunch of doctors there at the scene. One thing that I learned is that railroads hired their own doctors. Each, each town, each major point on the line 
had a, a railroad doctor, and so there was there was a railroad doctor for the Katy stationed in Waco. They rushed up, and one of the other of them gave him a, a heavy dose of morphine to handle the pain, which is all they could do at that point. There wasn't any such thing as EMS. They put the wounded people on board the first train headed to Waco, took them to Waco, and then took them to a, an old downtown hotel that no longer stands where a lot of the doctors had their offices, and that's where they uh, treated this guy. And again, they, they told the guy's brother... Uh, you know, he's going to die. Well, he didn't. He recovered. And uh, within a month or two, he ran an ad in the one of the Waco papers saying that uh, having gotten all the nuts and bolts out of my head, <laughs> I am back in the photography business. <laughs> a surgeon, a European trained surgeon, removed the bolt, was astounded to see that it had penetrated into the brain. But Luckily for this guy, apparently it went into a part of the brain where the damage was minor, if, if not totally, uh, totally uh, safe without it, or totally without harm. I don't know what the guy's mental shape was like after that. I mean, he, he stayed in the photography business for a good while, but most photographers I know are about halfway crazy anyway. So I don't know to what extent the, the brain harm, uh, you know, affected his personality he did end up getting a divorce and he was the he was the only character in the book whose grave I could not find I couldn't even find uh, exactly when he died I think he lived till until about 1910 and I think he's buried in El Paso but before we go I do want to tell you about Streeter just such a delightful character this is the guy that started the railroad crashing business he uh, decided to leave it I mean he made some money but not as much money as he wanted to make and so having been a brakeman for the railroad and having been in the railroad part business, he apparently had some pretty good ideas about how to improve railroad brakes. And he got some patents and he became a millionaire, uh, not on the railroad, but all on the railroad uh, equipment. Well, all was going well until 1908 when one night the Chicago Police Department raided a sleazy hotel in Chicago that had a reputation for l loose women being there and other ac nefarious activities. And they f went into one room and they found a s very attractive 17-year-old girl. And uh, when they started looking around at the correspondence uh, in her room, the love letters they found in her room, they were from Alfred Streeter, which I guess would not be that bad. I mean, he was older than her, of course. But there were some minor issues. Uh, a, uh, 17, of course, is below the age of consent at that time. And then secondly, not only was Streeter living with a, a woman who was his common-law wife, he also was married at the same time to two other women. So, again, my what math, but I believe that's four women that he was dealing with concurrently. And, so, uh, so a train crash actually wasn't that big a deal. It was, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's true, that's true, yeah. It ended up costing him his reputation. Shortly after he was indicted for the equivalent of statutory rape, he decided that it was time to visit Canada. And so he, uh, uh, he went to Canada for three years and stayed, stayed there, still had enough money to hire a, a good lawyer, and eventually uh, the, the lawyer got the indictment against him quashed. Uh, and so all was all was well. But he died in a he ended up dying in a mental hospital. Of course, his all of his wives were not pleased to find out that not only did he have a 17 year old girlfriend, but he had children by various women all over all over the Midwest. So uh, I, I tell people, if, you know, there are several things, lessons to learn from this book. And one of them is if you uh, want to stay out of trouble, it's best not to be married to two women at one time with a common law wife, with a mistress on the side. You know, it's just kind of, you know, might keep that in mind. Good advice. <laughs> Good advice. So I, I want to kind of go back to the, the crash itself. How far away were people from the actual crash when it happened? The people, like I say, on the east side who, who just sort of slipped under the tent, so to speak, were the closest to the tracks. The Katie held them back, and I've read various versions, uh, 100 yards, 200 yards. Like I say, probably contributed to the fact that there were so few injuries on, on that side. There were some, there were some you know, uh, non-fatal injuries. Uh, there were about six non-fatal injuries. But uh, the folks on the other side had crowded closer. Crush, like I say, was a, a consummate showman. He was riding a white horse. He had uh, a, a blue sash signifying his uh, status as the, uh, basically the showmaster. And he was riding around on his horse, you know, trying to, 
trying to, to, to herd people back. I mean, I, I think to his credit, uh, he, was, he was trying. Another of the myths that I shattered, the common story is that, that uh, he was immediately fired by the Katy Railroad for doing such an audacious thing, and then shortly thereafter rehired. I can find absolutely no record of that at all. The truth is that he was on the first train with the injured victims. He personally got them into the, the Pacific Hotel, which was the big downtown hotel, and arranged for their medical care. He did get a telegram from headquarters in St. Louis saying, uh, we need to see you in St. Louis on the, uh, tomorrow. Uh, and so uh, he spent the night in Waco, boarded the Katy Flyer the next morning for St. Louis. And there was an interview I found where he thought he was going to be fired, which is probably where the perception arose. But he got there, and basically his boss just kind of smiled and said, you didn't do anything wrong, you know. And, and uh, now the Katy never did it again, of course. But Texas had more professional railroad crashes than any other state. And, and the, the kicker is that after the crush thing, even though people had been injured, a young man, a farmer from Iowa, decided to get in the professional train crashing business and made a livelihood out of it from 1896 until 1933. He staged uh, something like 76 railroad crashes all over the country, at, generally at state fairs and, and other you know, large crowd kind of events. He did three of them in San Antonio. So San Antonio uh, has the world's record as the highest number of deliberate train crashes of any place I know of uh, anywhere. The guy's name was Joe Connolly, and uh, his nickname was Head On. It was Joe Head On Connolly. So it was, you know, quirky times. You wouldn't think weird things like that can happen today, but then all you got to do is watch the evening news, and you know that weird things still happen. I've always thought it was the weirdest thing for the railroad company to do, and I want to ask you about It's like two airline companies trying to promote an airline and running two airplanes into each other, which doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, did it have an impact on the the Katy as far as use of the Katy and advertising that line? Yes. I, in fact, I, I was able to find their annual report for the first year after this. Their earnings were way up. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it didn't harm them at all and, and uh, arguably did them, did them some good. Most people in the, in the articles that have appeared since then, which are very derivative, I mean, it's, you know, somebody, there were a couple of uh, people who were interviewed by the newspapers early on. There was one person who did some recollecting in the 1930s, and then somebody else wrote a, a recollection about it in 1957. Th those are the only participant accounts th that are known. And uh, each story you read is heavily developed from the other, which is why I was able to come in and, you know, dig deeper. There's another perception out there that the Katy Railroad paid every single person who was injured $10,000, which in, in 1896 was a huge amount of money, plus gave them a lifetime pass on, <laughs> on the Katy Railroad. I dug through the records at the uh, uh, McLennan County Archives, and actually, for the first time in over 100 years, held those lawsuits. There were only two lawsuits filed. You know, I held those in my hands and looked at them, and they were settled. Both of them were settled out of court, and it dang sure wasn't for $10,000. I mean, it was a matter of a few hundred dollars. And so that's another one of the, the myths about it. You know, J. Frank Doby, you all heard of J. Frank Doby. He said that when you use secondary sources, which is what it is, when you use somebody else's magazine article, that basically you're just digging up bones from one grave and putting them in another grave, you know. And We've kind of talked about the fact that there was the collision and then they were immediately, the injured were put on a train going to Waco. But what was the kind of environment at the time right after the crash? Was it like chaos? Chaos. There were a lot of complaints afterward that there were just too many trains trying to get out of there. They were, you know, they were headed from there, both north and south. The first non non-emergency train didn't get out of there. The crash happened plus or minus uh, five o'clock in the evening. And uh, the first train out of there didn't leave until nine something. So, you know, it was pretty chaotic. Uh, people were having trouble finding what train they were supposed to get back on. Even though the Katy cleverly had printed the tickets different colors for each train that you're you were supposed to get on. So, but still it was, you know, like any disaster, it was chaos. And, but unlike a modern disaster. There was no large-scale law enforcement apparatus. There was no, the term first responder also had not been coined yet. And so basically it was the railroad handling it. 
They did have some special sort of rent-a-cops that they had out there who had a, a commission as a deputy constable, and they arrested a few drunks. If they did anything, it didn't get reported in the in the newspapers, though I, I presume surely they did. But still, I'm sure it was mostly been a very chaotic scene. I've also read that folks rushed in for souvenirs as soon as the... Yes, uh, that's one of the cool parts. Again, one of the fun things about being a writer uh, at the museum at West, they have one of only about three known pieces of debris from the crash, which I got to take out of the, or they took out of the case for me and let me look at and photograph and hold. But the weird thing about that is thousands of people rushed out there and picked up metal, even when it was still, you know, hot from the boilers and and collected it as, as souvenirs. And that's one of the mysteries that I've, found i've read some reports you know that a lot of people in waco thousands of people from waco saw the crash and so i would would have thought that more of the artifacts would have survived there was a couple of people who did go out with metal detectors and do a lot of work at the scene both of them amassed pretty large collections but both of them died without issue and so i haven't been able to find anybody any descendants of those people so i don't know where where those artifacts are. It'd make a great archaeological project. In fact, the guy that is the uh, uh, director of the McLennan County Archives is a, uh, a trained archaeologist, and I've, I've talked to him about trying to get landowner permission and going out there if it ever gets cool again and work the site with metal detectors and see, you know, what else could be found. When you have that many people there, there's, there's bound to be some ditches that, didn't, uh, that still didn't get picked up. And the, the farmer who owned the land said that for years after that, uh, his plowing was difficult because he was always plowing <laughs> up metal, you know. Well, did you run into any other interesting characters? We've heard a couple of stories, but I really love the interesting stories that come up in these situations. Well, you know, Crush, in his own right, was an interesting character. Uh, he spent like 57 years working for the railroads. He, he worked for the Katy until 1940 he constantly moved up in rank i mean he was a he was a vice president and then finally in 19 i think 34 they gave him sort of a of a friendship lateral move where he still had a cool title but he didn't really have to do anything anymore and they kept him on the payroll until 19 around 1940 if he felt any remorse at having been responsible for three deaths and the loss of one eye and some fairly handicapping uh, injuries to others i never saw any trace of it in anything that he ever said afterward i do know he was a catholic so maybe he found some sort of absolution uh, through his religion he did love the railroads and when dallas still had passenger service they had a branch station in, in Highland Park where the main passenger trains would stop. And I found uh, somebody uh, did a recollection where they said that Crush, as an old man, would go out there and spend most of the day sitting at that depot just watching the passenger trains come and go. So obviously the railroads were his life, even though he saw and was involved in, in helping develop a, an airport for Dallas. You know, the railroads kind of helped kill themselves in a way. I know you've mentioned several things that are in the book, and we do have Mike's book with us tonight, and he'll be happy to sign it for you here in a little bit if you want to pick up a copy. You mentioned a few things in there, misconceptions you set straight. Were there some others that you ran into in your research? The newspapers actually killed a fourth person. All their articles said that three people had been killed by flying debris and that one person had been killed when they fell off the the train. Well, as it turned out, when I hired a genealogist to help me do some digging, and she found that the supposed third uh, immediate trauma victim did not die until a year after the crash at Crush. His death had nothing to do with any, I mean, he didn't receive any injuries at the crash at Crush. As ill line it goes, uh, you know, rumors of his death had been greatly exaggerated, except for the way that he did meet his end, which was being in a buggy with his wife, and it was in the summer. And How many were, wives did he have? I yeah, well, I think he had, best I can okay. tell, he just had one. Just the one. So yeah. he didn't get killed that way. But <laughs> in their buggy was driving by some kind of a, of a carnival. Uh, it may have been a 4th of July celebration, and somebody had stuffed gunpowder into an anvil, which was common back then they get the term for it but they would blow that powder it would make a big bang you know kind of a giant firecracker well somebody did that they had too much powder in it the 
anvil broke, pieces of metal came out, and he was killed by a flying piece of metal one year after the other people were killed by a flying piece of metal. So do, Can't do, avoid do, it do, twice. You know, yeah. It's one of those weird, weird little things. Another mystery that I, very perplexing, Waco was one of the largest cities in Texas at this time, and it had three daily newspapers. Only part of the coverage from the grandparent of the current Waco Tribune has survived. The uh, Any sort of back issues of those other two papers are not even extant for the time of the crush crash. So the way I was able to find my most of my newspaper coverage was, thank goodness, through now the the various websites that have digitized searchable newspapers, which for me ought to be a controlled substance because, I mean, they are so cool when you get on there and start start looking for stuff and finding things that people haven't read in 100 years. And so I was able to, that really helped inform my book quite a bit, finding other newspaper coverage other than Waco. But it was very frustrating because I know that the Waco papers being closest to the scene would have had the most thorough coverage well, it's been lost. And so the other mystery is how come nobody, you know, scrapbooks were very big in this era. How come some somebody didn't clip out those stories and put them in a scrapbook that survived? How come more people, you, you could get small Kodak cameras at this point. Where are other pictures other than those official pictures taken for the railroad? You know, none have come, have, have come to light. And so I, I keep fantasizing that somewhere here in Waco, in some attic or some uh, some place, some storage unit somewhere, maybe there's maybe there's still some uh, trove of information to be to be found. That would have been a great selfie. Indeed. Oh, uh, character Scott Joplin. I, you know, you were listening to his Crash at Crush March. Joplin, you know, is the black musician who invented uh, pretty much invented ragtime. He was living in Temple at the time of the of the Crush crash. I couldn't find any absolute documentation that he saw the crash, though certainly he read the newspaper coverage of it. But he did a composition that really recreates the sound of the of the crash. I mean, which shows his musical genius. A good friend of mine is a musician and a mu- music teacher, and he says that you know it's not a perfect piece, but it's a road marker that shows that he had made definite progress from his first known compositions to this point. And then, of course, he went on to, to write the Maple Leaf Rag, which became a, a huge national hit. And then he wrote a song called The Entertainer, which was forgotten until they did the movie The Sting back in the in the 70s, and that was chosen as a theme song for the movie. Scott Joplin was long dead by that time, but he got a, a posthumous uh, Academy Award for that uh, that score. So, really interesting character. He played in the black nightclubs that were near the railroad station there in Temple. I looked for those places. They've all, of course, been torn down. Uh, and that, that Crash at Crush March was published in, in Temple. Now, and, and that's kind of remarkable. And then a, a distributor in New Orleans who uh, kind of found that there was a large market for black music. Of course, they didn't call it that, but it was a white-owned company, and they distributed his music and included in that Crash It Crush piece nationally, which helped further his national reputation. So Joplin is uh, certainly one of those fascinating characters that I got to meet. He didn't live too very long, uh, died of syphilis. So again, there you know, lots of ways to get in trouble back then, but he was a hugely talented guy. Does anybody out in the crowd have any questions specifically? We, have, we got a mic up here. You got to come up to the front. My name is James. I wasn't at the Crash at Crush, but, but my grandfather was. He was the third photographer who worked for Dean who photographed the uh, second of the crash. He was on a wooden platform in a tree and got knocked out of it by a flying plank. He was a, quite an old timer. I think it fills in with a couple of facts that you might have missed on that. I sure appreciate your uh, darn good show here. One of the things I've noticed about writing books, I tell people there's two things that are going to happen if you ever write a book that's published. One is after you have finished writing it and and it's been published and you're sitting there kind of glancing over it, you will find a typo that you missed, your editor missed, your wife missed, your husband missed, everybody missed. Now, knock on wood, so far that hadn't happened with my last two books. But what has happened with every single book I think I've done is I've either discovered something that I forgot to put in the book or exactly like this. You know, uh, I'll be giving a talk somewhere and somebody will come up and say, yeah, you know, my great-grandfather, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I would have loved to have known that before the fact, but how do you find out? More questions. You know, there was uh, the excursion trains, 20,000 people. 
uh, there's a one-line rail from Waco through West. I'm the mayor of West. I, I've heard this story for probably 50-some-odd years, so I'm very familiar with the crash at Crush. But where did all the excursions, did they come into Waco and park, or did they just line up north and south of the, of the area? Because that's, they, they bought these excursion tickets to come to this place. Of course, they had to leave. There's no roundabout. So I was just wondering, do you sure. know? Yeah. Where, I, I do know. The Katy had built, a, like I say, a, a pretty long sidetrack next to the, the main line. And so they had some of the trains there. The rest of them, uh, they backed up. They, they backed up the southbound trains to Hillsboro. And they backed up the northbound trains to Waco, uh, the Katy Yard at Waco. And that's where they kept the majority of the of the rolling stock during the event. But and, and then the the railroad from the west perspective, West had a newspaper at that time. Again, there are no known copies of the West newspaper for that particular period. You know, they would have written something about it. Amazingly, I found very few people there uh, in West who have any family connections to it anymore. I mean, there, Patricia Cloud helped me, and her grandfather actually saw the crash, and, and in fact, he she told me a story that I used to open the book with, but the Katie tore down that city within 24 hours. Oh, and I, one thing I, I also forgot to say, on that one day, that was the largest city in Texas. It lasted roughly 24 hours. Well, I, it, it lasted three, four days, because they built it a week or so ahead of time, but there weren't that many people there except for one for one day. My name is James as well. Um, I don't really have much to add to your story, sir, but I've seen your name in the newspaper many, many times throughout my life because I grew up close by here. And this is more a little bit of a synchronicity thing. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, my, I don't know if my father was old enough, but grew up in Byrome, Texas, which is just south of there, right? And Byrome's long gone by now. But, uh, oh yeah? Population four? Ten, maybe? But to go on a little bit more with the synchronicity, like I said, my, my, my whole family tree comes right through, right by that crash site. Now, here I am, four generations removed, and I work for a bolt manufacturer in Waco. <laughs> and I'm also a member of American Railway Engineering Maintenance Away Association, which the meeting was this week in Minneapolis. And if I'd have made that meeting, I wouldn't be here tonight. So, But again, it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. And I will be buying one of your books. <laughs> Glad to have you. Anybody else out there? This is Chase. He's awesome. He helped put this together. Everyone uh, buy lots of beer and coffee and stuff. <laughs> okay, so I've seen the Woodstock documentary, and it, to me, it kind of feels like a Woodstock type of event. You know, it's a lot of people like going into a very concentrated place, becoming the biggest city in that state, and then something terrible happening. At Woodstock, something beautiful ended up happening, but also terrible. Uh, people weren't really accommodated for it. And so as far as the accommodations, was it a disaster? I guess my question is, was it a, a disaster before the crash happened? Or had they like had places for people to use a restroom and food? And it sounds like they had some options for food. It doesn't sound quite as bad as Woodstock, but it definitely, I definitely see some. I was really struck at the logistical work that the railroad did. They did, of course, porta-potties had not been invented in 1896, but they built a, a row of outhouses, privies, for the gas. Uh, they brought water in from uh, Waco. They had it in, uh, in railroad tank cars, and they actually laid pipe, ran them through where the people would be standing, and had a, a, a spigot at, at a certain distance along the pipe, and they had 10 cups chained to the pipes so that people could come up. It was kind of their version of a water fountain. You had to share your cup with, you know, hundreds of other people. And I'm sure there was a lot of slipped-in whiskey. They sold some kind of concoction there. I think that the area was dry at that time. It's hard to imagine with that many checks around, but I, I think it was dry. Another thing I did was look at the uh, docket, the, the docket, the only surviving docket from the uh, Justice of the Peace Court, the number of arrests were really very moderate when you consider that kind of crowd. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like just three or four, five, six. I don't remember exactly. Much smaller number than you would have expected for that many people. You know, I don't, I don't know how much peace and love there was there at the event, but I don't think there was much, much discord. I, I saw one instance of somebody talking about two kids getting in a fight, and one of the deputies pulled out his six-shooter and fired around in the air to calm them down. They didn't go to jail. I mean, I didn't find any record that they got arrested. 
Another sad thing, the, the McLennan County Sheriff's Office would have been would have had deputies out there and people involved, and there are no records, no records for the McLennan County Sheriff's Office from that from that year. You know, it's just very frustrating as a professional historian. You know, you know, when you can't even find any any footprint at all of something. Some writers just make it up after that, but of course, uh, and of course, when well, I, I did, Mike would never do that. No, no, yeah. no. never. Anybody else out there? Any last questions? Was uh, Mr. Gildersleeve not photographing back then? Apparently, he arrived some years after the fact, uh, which, again, is a, a shame. But thank goodness that Crush thought ahead to hire someone to to get those still pictures because the, the, the quality of them is great. There are only two. Dean had several brothers, and they, they, they sold the prints. The last time I checked there at the, the Texas Collection, there are only two known sets of those prints, and Baylor acquired the most recent one, or, or they acquired the second set fairly recently, and they uh, gave it a real good high-resolution digital scan, and so it's uh, uh, those were the ones that I was able to use for the book. Much better, much better quality. Another interesting thing they did, uh, the uh, railroad also commissioned a uh, film photographer to, to film the crash and he set up his equipment basically he had to set up a little dark room it was a, a huge piece of equipment whether there was some light penetration that ruined the film whether in the chaos that resulted somehow the film was ruined or if the film actually did exist for a while and was lost but this guy that and he's another one of the interesting characters he went on to really become a key player in the development of the movie industry. And uh, this would have been one of the first documentaries ever done had, that, had they been successful. He'd gotten some partial footage at a, at a prize fight prior to this event, but this would have been the first sort of non-sports event. Of course, I guess you can call this a form of sport anyway, but uh, been closer to a news event. So, But no, again, another mystery. There's, there's still, still a lot of mysteries connected to the story. All right, we got another question. This isn't that particular railroad related, but I've been doing a little research about a railroad, uh, the San Antonio and Aransas Pass Railroad, kind of an eminent domain style claim on a uh, church property in, in Waco in 1922. It was a the first brick church built by an African-American congregation, and the railroad somehow got a hold of that property. There were some lawsuits and things like that. But I was curious, one, how many railroads companies came through Waco in this period that you're talking about and what was that process like if there was land that they wanted but maybe the people didn't want to sell. Waco was quite the uh, quite the railroad center. I've, I've got it in my book and I slept since then. I don't remember exactly how many how many lines uh, uh, came through Waco. Cotton Belt Railroad was one that came through. The Katy of course came through. My memory is it like Four or five different rail lines served Waco for until the 60s. I think they had a really cool Union train station here, and uh, it got torn down in the 60s. Uh, as as far as the land stuff, I don't know the the fine details of it. I do know that the railroads were a huge corporate entity. Robber barons. Uh, I mean, they were not hugely popular with people. They made an awful lot of money, and you know, they made it a lot of it off the government because the government gave them land in exchange for you know, laying track. The railroads were pretty much the, you know, 800-pound canary. They pretty much do whatever they whatever they dang well wanted to do. Yeah, and I wanted to ask that question because I know that's really true at the period of the collision, and I wondered if people were rooting for the fact that two trains were getting destroyed just because of popular feelings <laughs> against the railroad in the period. The trains that were that were destroyed were, were obsolete. I mean, they would have been out of their fleet anyway. You know, monetarily, uh, I think they made money on it. If they, if they didn't, if they broke even, they really far exceeded their investment in terms of the publicity that it got them. And like I say, interestingly, there was not much, most of the media focused on the fact that, oh, wow, two trains crashed head on in Texas. Some of the stories kind of way down at the bottom, oh, yeah, two people were killed. Some of the newspapers got it right and, and focused on the fact that two people died in the, in the crash. But basically, you know, the, the people kind of forgave them. I mean, there were a few scathing articles, but most of the articles were, were positive to, to neutral. And also there was no government regulation to speak of. The Texas Railroad Commission had been created by that point, but their regulatory authority was really not over safety issues. It was over rates primarily. And then the, uh, there was a federal railroad agency, but they two basically were involved with rate regulation and not not safety i mean you can just imagine if something like that happened today first of all it wouldn't it couldn't even 
couldn't happen probably, but uh, if it did happen, well, you know that OSHA and and uh, National Transportation Safety Administration and, you know, the state and everybody in the world would be crawling all over that to try to figure out what what happened. So railroads could get away with, they, they could do just almost what they wanted to do back in that era. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Mike Cox, for coming out. Thank you, Mike. Thank you all for coming, coming out. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Pinewood Public House on September 25th, 2019. Thanks to Pinewood for hosting us. Learn more about the podcast at wacohistorypodcast.com. Learn more about Stephen's app at wacohistory.org. Subscribe and rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go, stick around to hear Scott Joplin's Great Crush Collision March. Thanks for listening.